Welcome to Evolved Radio, where we explore the evolution of business and technology. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Rob Malik of BusinessWorks Consulting. Rob has been working with organizations to improve their revenue generation for over a decade. In addition to his consulting work with clients, Rob is also an author and an active speaker. Today, we explore how sales is evolving in the digital age and what makes a great salesperson. Rob also gives us some great actionable advice on how to improve your sales opportunity inflow. So grab a notepad and get ready to learn from a successful sales veteran. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, be sure to check out the webpage, evolvedmgmt.com slash podcast for show notes, links to my guests, and to check out previous episodes. Now let's get started. So today we have joining us Rob Malik. Thanks for coming on, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Today we're going to chat about uh, the sales process and how sales is changing in modern business. And I think this is going to be really interesting with a lot of uh, great insights on how business is changing and and how technology is impacting the sales process. So really looking forward to your insights here. Awesome. Happy to share. So how do you feel that sales is evolving in modern business? Well, it's been very interesting for me to watch uh, over the course of the last five years, I've been doing more and more and more work in the high-tech space here in Vancouver. And interestingly, what is old is becoming new again in that um, you know, initially companies were saying, how can we close sales and generate revenue in an automated way? How can we set up our websites to guide our buyers through uh, purchasing? And what they're finding is that you know, you really can't replace the human touch. And more specifically, that people still need some help in thinking through their purchase decision. And that it's not uh, simply an information-based decision. It's really a left-brain, right-brain thing. So people will shop in a left-brain way. What are my options? What are the features of those options? What are the prices? But then when it comes down to the actual purchase and, you know, typing in their credit card number, there's always that hesitation, you know, that thought is, is this right for me? Am I overpaying? Mm, Or, oh, yeah, or the the price seems kind of low. Am I going to get the quality that I think I want and I need? And so people hesitate. And the conversion rates they were finding were were quite low. And so uh, with the high-tech companies I'm, I'm working with now, and, you know, I work with startups, I work with those who have millions of dollars in revenue, and I work with those that have tens of millions in revenue. And they're finding that, wow, we, we got to talk to people and uh, help them think through, are we the right option for them now? Are we going to be able to deliver the value that they're after in the way that they want to receive it? So it's it's been really neat to see the pendulum swing. That's really interesting. The So I guess the, the tech, you touched on a couple of points that technology has an enablement role both for uh, the purchaser but also for the seller. And you, you, can you chat a bit more on on kind of both ends of that? Uh, I imagine technology enables selling uh, online and, and that virtual purchase to potentially accelerate the uh, sales cycle, uh, but the importance also of, of technology and its role in the, the sales team, the CRM, VoIP, analytics, all of that information. How, do, how does all that, that play together in your view? 
Right. So the technology on behalf of the buyer, you know, to, to state the obvious, uh, buyers often have as much information, sometimes if not more, than those who are selling. And it's fundamentally changed the role of the salesperson. And if there ever was a notion there was some sort of power dynamic where the salesperson uh, held some power, that's completely shifted. Um, the role of the salesperson isn't anymore to be the holder of information or inside information um, simply because all that's on the internet and people will arrive at the site where they're looking to purchase something with that information in mind and in hand. And so the role of the salesperson has shifted to being that of a navigator. So imagine the two of them are in a car. A salesperson might have thought, you know, several, many years ago they were in the driver's seat um, and the passenger was in the, in the navigator seat to the right. And now it's, it's completely flipped where the buyer's in the driver's seat and, and the role of the salesperson now is to help them navigate through their decision. Is this the right product for me or service? Is it going to bring the value uh, that I need as, as the purchaser? And so, you know, the seller needs to be very aware of the value they can bring. They need to be very, I think, skilled to, to be successful at diagnosing what buyer needs are because sometimes buyers will show up and they know they need something. That some buyers may have a burning need that will be satisfied right away and others, the need isn't burning enough to incent to purchase. And the role of the salesperson isn't to persuade or to push, rather it's to help the buyer come to grips with, well, what is the depth and breadth of what I truly need? And then help that buyer connect dots um, around what the seller has to offer. So flipping to the CRM side, you know, if the dream a few years ago was have a buyer show up to a website and convert into a purchase straight away with uh, few or no touches, now the role of CRM is really to be two things most effectively used. One is a rearview mirror as to what happened with each client interaction uh, with a particular client along the way, what information was garnered, how did we get to know that client better and their needs. And the next is a windshield in terms of, well, as a seller, for an individual interaction, what is it I need to do in my next get-together on the phone or face-to-face -face with this client to help them think through their purchase decision. And then if we take a step back for a salesperson running their territory or the business in totality, it helps them wrap their head around where exactly is my business in terms of revenue generation? How much do I have in raw opportunity? How much do I have in opportunity I've been working on? How much do I have that's close to turning into money? And what are my conversion points or rates rather between each of those points? And if the conversion rate is good, how do we make it better? If my conversion rate is bad, well, what's going on inside of that so I can improve it? and become more effective and efficient in generating revenue. So that, at a very high level, is the role of CRM for salespeople and for companies today. So the, the importance of uh, the technology and the process, as well as the people, how would you rank the importance of uh, the individual, the kind of that, that salesperson that has knowledge in their head and a, a bit of a, an intangible? Uh, or is it really just down to process and, and uh, managing a good sales methodology? W would you say one is more important than the other? I, uh, is one more important than the other? I, I would say that, boy, I, I think they're both neck and neck, and, and you can have success with both, but limited success. And so if you have a sales process that you have clearly defined um, you know, down to the minutia level, and you think, I can take someone who is green as grass with no experience and you know, sit them at the desk and say, just follow you know, step one through 50, 
And if you do it frequently enough, you'll generate revenue. Uh, I've seen success uh, in that way. It's very non-creative. Generally, that's not that fun. And for the employee, it's not that engaging. And But having said that, if you work the, the mechanics of the process and the numbers, you'll have success. And you'll capture the sales that you should capture, meaning those buyers that come to you with a well-defined need. And they say, look, here's what I'm after. Can you give it to me? Is the price right? Yes, let's go ahead. Uh, on the flip side, you can have someone who's a natural and who has that knack of working with people and helping them get to yes. And they'll close the sales that they should get as well. Uh, and sometimes if they're really good, as much as the people who are following the process. The companies who do the best, in my experience and what I've seen, is they have people who are skilled in working with buyers who also use a CRM as the foundation of their business. So as a repository of information, it helps them be more efficient and effective uh, in, in working the sales process that's being defined. And imagine it is the palette of paint. And then if they have salespeople who do have that knack to be able to listen to people, diagnose what their needs are, uh, and prescribe solutions, those are, the, those are the artists. And those are the people who will use that palette of colors to paint a beautiful picture, which turns out to be a happy buyer at the end who purchases and then will repurchase and will re- refer their friends. So to expand a bit on that idea, something I'm, I'm always interested in is, is the behavioral profile and, and the aspects of someone's, someone's work and, and how they approach their, their work with, with other people and their potential buyer. Do you find that there's a certain personality type or behavioral profile that is more suited or, or tends to be more successful in sales? Or is that sort of not as relevant and, and anyone can kind of be coached to be a great salesperson? Uh, well, I think more the former than the latter. And uh, what I've been learning about that has been really interesting to me and quite counter to what I would have said 10 years ago. Um, as far as successful salespeople, it's usually, well, it's consistently certain traits and characteristics that make them successful. The traits and characteristics will turn into behavior that's observable. And so the challenge for the uh, manager of the company who's hiring salespeople is, of course, in an interview process, you don't really see the selling behaviors. And so you need to try to understand how is this person dialed up? What do they care about? What don't they care about? What do they like doing? What do they not like doing? So that we're getting down now to uh, personality traits and characteristics. And so in general, successful salespeople um, you know, and often they'll be hired and they're straight out of school or straight out of a non-sales job. Um, but the things we look for to try to predict success, uh, in general terms, um, you want somebody who is results and achievement oriented. So asking a question in an interview process is something like, tell me about things that you have achieved in the past. How did you work at them? What did you achieve? And to what level and how did it go? The people who are um, dialed up to be achievers they'll have something in their life, be it sports or something in their personal life, where they'll say, yeah, I I did this thing and I worked at it over time and I was named captain of the team or I was MVP or I got the lead part in the play, whatever that might be. And those are people who are focused on achieving it in sales because it's very much, uh, you know, if you're in accounting, for instance, the work finds you. People will bring you the work to do. When you're in sales, if you sit beside the phone, it's not ringing. You, You need to reach out to people or email or the like. And so because there's that self-starter notion, you do need this achievement orientation. 
Uh, also competition. The best salespeople are often competitive. And I, I, when I say that, I don't mean hyper competitive, crawl over the desk trying to close business, but rather um, if you say to them, well, tell me something you were involved in where there was other people on the team, where did you rank? Uh, competitive people will know I was first, I was third, I was fifth whatever the case may be. Those who don't care about uh, the competitive side of things will say, I don't know, I don't really track those things. Um, successful salespeople are competitive because there is, uh, there is a win-lose piece to sales. Often we call those deals that we uh, successfully get as a win. And so we need that piece as well. Uh, generally speaking, team players will perform better in sales, uh, specifically because Sales is a role where often you need to coordinate production and delivery, et cetera, et cetera. And so you need a lot of moving parts, uh, a lot of people who are at the wheel of those moving parts to help a process move along to end up with a satisfied customer. So the lone wolf salesperson, I'm not saying they, they don't have success or they couldn't, but generally they don't contribute as much to the team. And generally speaking, they're not as successful as those who are team players. So there's a few examples of some traits and characteristics that uh, make for good salespeople. And either they come to you as proven salespeople or, or you say, okay, they've got these foundational traits and characteristics. I think we can work with them and uh, help them become successful. That's awesome. Appreciate that. One of the other aspects uh, I, I see in this is um, the the rise of kind of the social sale. It's something that I, I tend to hear a lot about. And I think a lot of people are, are sort of getting away from the idea of uh, cold calling. And I think there's maybe still a place for it. I'd love your, your feedback on, you know, the rise of the social sale versus the more traditional model of, you know, just dialing for dollars. Do you find that that is changing in some aspect? One is becoming more successful than the other in some way? Right. If I was to write a second book, it would be called Cold Calling is Dead. And it truly is, truly is dead. It's, uh, and when I say that, what I mean specifically is the return on time and energy invested in that activity is extremely low. And um, so now, for instance, you know, it used to be, oh, you had to go through a gatekeeper to get to the person, the buyer that you want to speak with. Now there's not even a person there. It's, it's a, an automated system where you have to know the extension of people in order to reach them. And uh, cold calling people, you know, now with call display, everyone's got call display for the most part. If they don't recognize the number, they're not picking it up. And so my experience with clients that I meet who say we've been cold calling and here's our results is their ratio of calls to meetings booked is really, really, really low. And so I counsel my clients, don't cold call. It's uh, such a low return activity. And you know the other piece in there too is the emotional capital for a salesperson. Uh, imagine making 50 calls a day, five days a week, having you know booking one meeting a day. That's really hard on you, and it's it's demoralizing. And so, with social media, it's a great way to open the door and get over that trust barrier. And that's the thing is the trust barrier. People. Um, will be thinking, okay, if I'm going to purchase from a company, I'd like to at least know a little bit that they're trustworthy, that they're good. And if you're selling at a higher level to, let's say, senior executives and the like, um, when a senior executive has a colleague who says, look, you know, get on the phone with Todd. He's well worth 15 minutes of your time. There's a high degree of likelihood Todd's going to get that telephone meeting. And so the, the social selling piece can help if done correctly, to bridge that trust gap that exists and make some connections for sure. So with that, what do you think in, in sort of your experiences is the most successful, the sort of the, 
the highest output of those sales vehicles. You know, it's, uh, as you said, it's not cold calling. Some of the other ones that you tend to see are, are you know, going to networking events and becoming a part of professional groups. And uh, the, the one that I tend to hear a lot about is just leveraging your network. But, you know, leveraging your network is difficult if you don't have a sort of a lot to go off of. And I think this is where I find a lot of young sales pers- people really struggle is that if they don't, have uh, a number of people that they can draw off of to get started how do they build those relationships in order to start to to develop a network and be able to build a funnel right um so specifically what i recommend is uh, i think like linkedin is the best vehicle at the moment and specifically because the reason people sign up for linkedin and post a profile is because they want to connect and they want to interact so you're not pestering anybody by connecting with them on LinkedIn. Now, having said that, connecting with people on LinkedIn that are second or third degree connections, that especially third degree connections, it's hard to convert them into a first degree connection because they don't know you. And so um, specifically what I suggest for new salespeople, and I've recommended this several times and it's worked like a charm, is uh, it's a 10 minute a day approach to building your LinkedIn network. And so what it looks like is take 10 minutes every day and look back at the previous day and say, okay, who did I interact with uh, in terms of customers in a meaningful way that I'm not connected with on LinkedIn? And then think, which existing customers did I deal with that I'm not connected with on LinkedIn? And work your way through your interactions in the previous day. And everybody you interacted with reach out and connect with them on LinkedIn. I find probably in the business community, it's about 75% people who have a LinkedIn profile. And then go back two days previous and say, okay, well, who did I interact with that day that I'm not connected with on LinkedIn? And work your way back until uh, you get to the point where you go, okay, I'm now connected on LinkedIn with all my customers. And I'm connected with, and this is a funny thing, all the people within my office because uh, often People don't think to connect with folks that are that close to them. And then I say, uh, okay, well, think about the place where you worked previous to this job, if it's not their first job. Who do you know there that you're not connected with on LinkedIn? And so we make those connections. And then uh, if you went to university or college, what friends did you have there? Are you connected with them on LinkedIn? And I suggest going all the way back to high school. Only people that you know well enough who if they heard your name, they go, yeah, I know that person. So it's not meant to be just any stray connection. It's people that you know well. And you'll get to 500 connections in absolutely no time. And then you'll be completely shocked and amazed at who your network knows that you would like to get to know by way of buyers. And so in a matter of about four weeks, 10 minutes a day, You'll get your connections up to where you need to. And even if you're brand new to the workforce, um, is specifically connecting with existing customers because they're swimming in the same pool as the customers that you don't have yet, you'll find that there's enough connections to get you going. That's a great system. That's a good insight. But I guess uh, 
what would be the next step from that? Because it, it's great to have, you know, 500 plus connections. Uh, but, you know, I see a lot online, people kind of revolt against the, you know, I made a connection, and then I'm instantly getting the the, 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 the sales pitch five minutes later. So what's kind of the softer way to approach someone to that? Can you just ask to go to meet them for coffee or for lunch? What, what would you advise as a typical next step to get engagement with those people once you're connected? Right? Well, if I'm connected to an individual, and that individual is connected to a sales prospect I would like to meet, then the way that I suggest using LinkedIn is connect with the individual and say, I would like to meet with a sales prospect. I see that you're connected with them first degree on LinkedIn. Would you be okay to connect us by email? And so I send that email and I suggest don't send it through the LinkedIn email system because it's a bit wonky and isn't um, always 100%. And the other thing that's hard is you can't copy CC people and so you don't always see the email string. So we make that request through Outlook or whatever your mail system is, Gmail or the like, and see what the person says. And if the individual says, oh, well, you know, I don't know that person well enough to introduce you, then fine. And if the person says, no, oh, I'm happy to help, then the next important step is that you have an email template that you can send to that individual to say, thanks very much for your willingness to introduce me. Here's some verbiage you can um, edit, copy, and paste to form an email to send to that prospect in order to connect us. And then once you send that, copy me on it, and I'll take the ball from there. So we've made it easy for the referring party, because that's the other hard part, is people go, okay, I'm happy to introduce you. I don't exactly know what you want me to say. And so in giving them that information, it's easy for them. 90% of the time, you'll see an email connecting you to that other party that's exactly the email verbiage you provided to the referring party to use. So in making it easy for them, the referral happens. The other um, magic piece that I didn't necessarily recognize up front is people really do want to help. They sincerely want to help. And if you're connected with them and it wasn't just you're connecting with anybody you've ever heard their name, it's people that you have a direct relationship with. Uh, for the most part, they want to help. And if they know the prospect you want to get connected with, they'll, in fact, make the effort. We need to help make it as easy as possible for them but the willingness is there. So that's how I recommend using it. And I, I haven't been using LinkedIn in a marketing sense uh, right now. I prefer the power of the warm connection, and my clients have seen really good success using that approach. This is excellent. Uh, what this kind of reminded me of is uh, moving from dialing for dollars or you know dialing war dialing to just get a, a connection to someone and make a pitch. It's more you're, you're in a sense dialing for relationships. Uh, it's uh, uh, relationships is a big piece that I focus on in in coaching uh, businesses with management. Uh, and I guess the same is said for sales now that the relationships are really the key glue that's going to get you some opportunity to move a, a sales funnel forward. Right? For sure. We in sales we are all in the trust business. And if you really think about that and, and feel it, all of a sudden you go, wow, dialing for dollars doesn't make any sense because there's no way to address that trust gap. And it is literally cold calling. So you'll make a lot fewer calls and a significantly higher degree of success by using this relationship method. Absolutely. So for the sales manager kind of overseeing this, uh, something that I focus on in coaching uh, my clients is, is around metrics and view visibility of the business through dashboards and, and, uh, and numbers and what the, that story tells you. Uh, do you feel that that has a, a same level of importance in managing a sales team, understanding 
the data uh, and how and having that data entered because something that I've I've seen rightly or wrongly that uh, salespeople get a bit of a rap for not being great with data entry and and administrative tasks. Do you think that that is really really important that you know sales managers should still uh, focus the team on that and and drive that effort forward, or is there better ways to oversee a, a sales team? The example I always use is um, imagine if you were a furniture manufacturer and you were the head of production, and um, you know senior leadership came to you and said, "We we need to understand uh, what's going into making our tables. We want to make sure we're pricing it uh, appropriately so that we're getting consistent margin." And we understand our costs and our inputs so we can negotiate better contracts with our suppliers. And imagine if you as a production manager said, oh, yeah, I don't measure that stuff. Uh, it's too much detail. My people don't like, they're not numbers people. Leadership would look at you and say, that's insane. We, we can't run a business this way. And generating a sale, building a sale to me is the same as building a physical product. You need to understand the inputs, what they are, and how much of each is required in order to produce a sale on the other end so you can then assess and say we are effective or we're not, we're efficient or we're not. And uh, so over time, you can move the needle on both of those towards generating more revenue on a reliable and uh, predictable basis. And so dashboards are critical. They're absolutely critical. In terms of what we should be measuring, early in the sales process, there's four or five key things that sales managers, or even a salesperson themselves, if you're an individual person, consultant who's building your own business, uh, you need to measure your activities because, of course, activities precede results. And if you do enough of the activities on the front end, you'll have some good success on the other end. And then, of course, we want to measure some of the results metrics for a couple of reasons. One, for the obvious, the, the big result metrics is, is revenue brought, uh, brought in, the revenue is secured. Uh, so we want to know how, how successful we're being there. But the other piece, too, is back to this emotional capital. When you're in the phase of building your business and you're not getting a lot of wins, anytime you get one, you really want to celebrate it because that's the thing that keeps you motivated to go the next, uh, the next step and the, the next mile to, in fact, get, get greater results. So the dashboard is critical. Yeah, that's great. I'm I'm so glad you're you're uh, have the same worldview on this as me. I thought maybe I was just crazy that you know somehow the salespeople had an exception, um, but you know it's it is the most black and white industry uh, in business. Either you're you're winning or you're not, uh, and no one else is is generally held to the same standard as the salespeople in an organization. So I, I think it is important to to understand those numbers to be able to to measure that success. Oh, for sure. And you know, how many departments have a whiteboard with everyone's results posted on the whiteboard uh, you know, for the previous day's work? Not often. So sales is a very much a scoreboard-driven role, absolutely. So you do, you know, and the thing about uh, salespeople aren't good with numbers, um, you know, the, the manager's job is to manage the numbers and lead people. And if your team is saying, well, I don't like data entry and the like, there's, there's a reason why they don't like it. There's a reason why they don't find value in it. And the manager's job is to peel the onion on those things and understand the why behind the what, the, the why behind the behavior we're seeing, and get the shift. Uh, because without being able to measure, you can't manage the numbers and no one's going to be successful. Simple as that. Right on. What about, uh, you know, what are some other uh, causes of failure or success for the individual contributors of the sales manager? Any, any things that you, you, you know, you're starting fresh with a client, what are some of the things that you expect to see that they're just sort of these common occurrences within that organization? 
by way of what makes them successful or things I see that typically are sticking points and why they're failing? Well, probably the latter. Like, uh, what are the things you know that that you you can assume that you're going to have to do some work on with with most organizations when you start with them? Right. Generally, um, the the first thing you hear is uh, so I'll ask a question. Well, tell me about your sales process and how you've documented it. And they look at me and go, well, "What do you mean by a sales process and document it? Absolutely not. But we have." Uh, you know, our sales team is doing what they do in the best way possible. We give them a cell phone and the keys to the Ford Taurus and the way they go. And so when the process isn't defined, then you can't obviously work that process in a systematic and meaningful way. And so that's the first thing I see. The, the second thing I see where, okay, they're going to they're gonna have trouble or here's why they're having trouble is if there's no CRM. Or in the absence of CRM, there's, there's no even an Excel-based tracking uh, mechanism that helps them understand their sales funnel, where each opportunity is along the way to converting into a paying customer. After a very small number of sales opportunities, nobody can keep it all in their head. It's next to impossible. And so it's tough as a salesperson to hit the desk and be efficient and effective when they have nothing recorded about the history of opportunities. And also, if none of that is inside the funnel, when sales manager sits with uh, company leadership or ownership and has to do forward-looking projections on revenue, and they don't have a very firm grasp on what's in the funnel at what stage of um, development towards closure, then they can't reliably and predict uh, reliably predict revenue into the future. Uh, and the last thing I typically see is um, sales peaks and valleys. And, and the peaks are awesome. You're closing business. Everyone's jazzed up. And then all of a sudden the funnel is bone dry and it's a really dire time and it's all hands on deck trying to generate new leads and get them in the funnel. So the peaks are great and fun and the valleys are really, really terrible and, and no one enjoys those. The reason they happen is a lack of discipline around filling the funnel. So when we start finding opportunities and companies, you know, to start working them and closing them, they completely stop the business development function. That's why the funnel goes dry. So it's it's discipline around, okay, we got to keep what we have moving forward, moving forward. We still need to crack some daylight into our day in order to do the filling the top end of the funnel stuff so that once our business at hand closes, we're not totally dry and we can hit the ground running on those other opportunities. So those are the, the main things that I see that would say uh, either A, well, this is why you're not having success, or B, you're headed for a sales trough and you're going to be in trouble. I love the fact that you addressed that sales ro- roller coaster. I've certainly been a part of organizations where that was the case and it, it can be a little scary. You know, the, the ups are, are awesome, but you know, when it's dry, the, the pressure sure comes down from the executive and the management level. So uh, I'm familiar with that piece. The other thing related to that, that I, I've seen and, and I've, I've heard other people sort of suggest that there's some truth to this is I find this really odd situation where it seems like when you have those trough moments, everything seems to sell at the same time. Have you seen this? as well that like it's dry it's dry it's dry and then everything sells at the same week uh i have seen things like that and i wonder if it's because you get so immersed in the one activity of of trying to get things into the the dry funnel that all of a sudden poof they turn into revenue at the same time so you're right and that leads us to the sales peak so if we sprinkle the business development activity during peaks and valleys, you can, as you can see, as some things close, the next things will come on. As some things close, the next few things will come on. When we're in a valley and we try to f- stuff the top of the funnel, 
Yeah, it makes sense to me that all of a sudden, poof, all the stuff starts to close. And from a running the business perspective outside of the sales department, now we're stressing operations or we're stressing delivery or we're stressing customer service. Um, you know, in the old days, it used to be the companies that would have a quarter end sale or Black Friday kind of sale or the like, where um, they get this huge influx of orders and then people have to deliver on that. And it really stresses the system. And from the top, running the business in its entirety, management would rather see a steady flow of business so they can get their suppliers in a rhythm of shipping in supplies. They can get production in a rhythm of producing. You know, they're going to have some uh, expansion and some contraction rather than the big swings that stresses the business to its core. Uh, so we're coming up towards the end of the show, Rob, and um, one of the things uh, I, I would love to, to hear is, and I think you've touched on a couple of these points, so feel free to kind of reiterate and refresh, but if uh, a salesperson or a sales manager wanted to be much more effective with their sales success and their sales funnel tomorrow, what are kind of two or three activities that you would suggest are really key that are going to create some activity and some forward momentum for them? Right. Um, well, the first thing would be if you don't have a sales funnel or you don't know what that term means, uh, go online, get educated straight away. It's a very simple concept. You need to pour lots in the top. So you know some are going to fall away because they're not a fit to have those purchase, those who are purchasing and turning into revenue coming out the bottom of your funnel. Um, there's distinct sales funnel stages. And so you need to know what they are. And once you get that under your belt, then you'll look and say, okay, well, now that I know those, how do I move opportunities from one funnel stage to the next? And think that through. And if you thought, okay, well, here's how I'm doing it today. And then you documented it like a flow chart. You would look and very quickly say, oh, okay, well, this is why we're so efficient or wow, this is why we're so inefficient or ineffective because you'll quickly see the gaps. And so what that would look like is if you're um, part of a sales team, you get the sales team together and you do this up on a whiteboard and uh, chat that through. So that's the first thing if you want to start generating more sales tomorrow. The next thing, um, 10 minutes a day on LinkedIn. Very, very top, high on the list uh, to increase your connection base so that you have a referral network, people who know you and are willing to refer you, so that when you start doing more business development activity, you have a place to focus your efforts. And the next piece is to become skilled at diagnosing customer needs. In general, the salespeople are great at talking about their product. They're great uh, to connect cursory buyer needs to where their product can help, but usually it's 70% on our features and 30% on connecting the dots with our buyer. Getting great at diagnosing needs up front to understand the totality of where does it hurt for the buyer that you can help. Then understanding what's the buyer trying to achieve? What's their vision? What does good look like if they can get those things fixed? Not what does good look like if they're using your product, but rather what would good look like if those pains are addressed? And then and you get the vision of what the buyer is trying to achieve in the big picture. And then underneath it all, the third thing is what value is the buyer looking to derive by purchasing any solution? And it's going to be one um, of five things or a combination of those five. It's looking to somehow either make money or save money save time, make their life easier, or live the dream of an overall improved situation. Those are the five core value drivers. And so if you get really great at diagnosis, the prescription's easy. And the prescription's far more effective because you help the buyer connect 
dots between, oh, yeah, here's what my needs are, and I've fully articulated them even better than I knew what they were before speaking with the seller. And now I'm really, really clear on how the buyer solution can help me, or the seller solution rather can help me. And that leads to a higher incidence of purchase. And so there's, of course, sales literature. There's tons and tons and tons of books out there. Um, so that would be the next piece of reading, if you will. So if you did those few things just to start, uh, got, you know, got the, the ball rolling on those, you'd have success in short order. That's awesome. Appreciate that input. So Rob, uh, if people wanted to connect with you and understand a bit more, potentially engage you for, uh, for your services to help them improve their, their sales operations, where would they look for you? Uh, if you go to the web and Google my name, Rob Malik, M-A-L-E-C, or my email is rob at robmalik.com. Uh, if you were to search the name of my book, Sell More by Selling Less, you'd find me there as well. Excellent. So uh, reach out to Rob and get your sales funnel in order. So appreciate your time today, Rob. I think this has been a valuable insight and uh, hope you have a, a great week. Thanks, Todd. Thank you very much for having me.